Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at cclo.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. If you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation 13, continuing our study, the letter from Patmos. And I just want to like, I want to do one clarification before we go any further, just Um, I know the last few weeks causing a lot of wrestling and stirring and uh, the number of people that have walked up and said, I've been in church my whole life and I've never heard this. (laughs) Pardon me, wants to say, well, what church were you going to? No, (laughs) but I was there too. I was there too. Um, So, so first off, when, uh, when I say things like, hey, the church won't be here. So my, my view of scripture and how we read it just just in a good, literal, grammatical, hermeneutic interpretation, is the concept and understanding, knowing from even as First Thessalonians, give us multiple promises that the church is not destined for the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is different than the persecution of the world, right? Persecution, wrath of God, two totally different things. And it would even, you would dilute the wrath of God to try to mix it up and think, is this persecution or is this wrath? Like, they will know it is the wrath of God. These are two totally different things. It's like if I punched you in the arm or if Pastor Sean punched you in the arm, right? One, persecution. Sean, that's the wrath of God, right? <laughs> you will know. Your arm won't be able to move. Like, you will know. And, and that is key. So when I say the church isn't going to be here, I'm not talking about the building. The building will be here. So sadly, if you're still here, hey, have fun with the building. We'll be gone. But when I say the church won't be here, I'm talking about those of us that have put our faith and our trust in Jesus. The rapture of the church will happen before the start of tribulation. And so we will not be here to endure any of these events. And the only thing that we're waiting on is that rapture that has no signs or anything tied to it. So we're not looking around. We're just looking for a savior to call us out before he pours out his wrath. And it's key to know that because as we're going to walk through a few different uh, events and uh, concepts here, a lot of times we can think, oh, I need to really pay attention so that I don't get deceived when this happens, if it happens in our lifetime. Well, the, the problem with that is we're not going to be here for these events. And, and so then we're asking, well, why are we studying them? Let's study about what we are going to be here for. Even though we're not going to be here, we study these because we have loved ones, we have friends, we have coworkers, we have people in our spheres of influence that do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so when he comes back and takes his church, he's taking those that do have a relationship with him, meaning he's going to leave the rest who do not have a relationship, who are not a part of the church, and they will endure these. And if anything was going to to reignite a, a zeal and a passion for us to share the word of God and to share the gospel of Jesus. It should be not just the sweetness of it, right? We talked about that, the sweet and the bitter, the sweetness of the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus, the peace that we find in him, absolutely all true. But we also need to share the bitterness. It's not just what we're saved to, but the gospel is good news because of what it saves us from. 
that we were, were children of wrath, but because of our faith, now we are children of God and we are saved from the wrath of God because it was poured out on Christ on the cross. That's what it means. He was our propitiation. He suffered the wrath of God that was deserved towards us but he took our punishment for us. And that's why we put our faith and our trust in him. Yes, we want the grace and the mercy, but I also, I want to be saved from the things that are to come. And we need to have that good, clear distinction. One, because that's the promises of the word of God. And then there's other little things that if, if we don't, can really start to cause some conflict and really cause a lot of confusion. And so with all that, Revelation chapter 13. Actually, we're going to start at the end of 12, the very last sentence of chapter 12. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And we'll get to that. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns, seven heads, with 10 diadems on its horns and, a, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Definitely remember that key point. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Actually, I know the answer to that question. I know who can fight against the beast, but that part of the story is coming later. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And you do the math, and that's the three and a half years, the second half of tribulation. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, he was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth. Again, we as the church are never called earth dwellers. Our citizenship is somewhere else because of our faith in Jesus. We're never called earth dwellers. But all who dwell on the earth will worship it. And everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast. So we already have one beast. Now we get a second beast. Here we go. Saw another beast rising out of the earth. Different location. First one out of the sea. Second one out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. And it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. And he makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal head was healed. And it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to me that. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. 
also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is 666. Every time we talk about revelation, what do we do as the church? Who's the antichrist? And we think about the list of people who could be potential qualifiers for it, right? Maybe they sat in the White House. Maybe they're the Pope. Maybe they're your fifth grade teacher, right? Unless you're a fifth grade teacher, you'd be like, wow. And then we want to know what's the mark. And as we've gone through every generation, we think of like, is this the mark of the beast? Is that the mark of the beast? And then we, then we have that number 666. And who is that representing? But just like at the, how we, is our style, we walk verse by verse, that'll be at the end of the sermon. So let's start at verse one. And so even before that, at the end of 12, you know, so last week uh, rattled some cages of a few that yes, Satan has access to heaven right now as we speak. Now he's not golfing the back nine, right? He's not frolicking the golden streets. He's not enjoying the amenities of heaven. Because again, we have to, we have to fight that Americanized Western view of heaven up here, hell down here for Satan and his demons. And then here we are on earth just trying to be good people so that our elevator goes up and not down. No, it's a courtroom, battlefield-esque spiritual realm that resembles, reflects the physical world. And better, actually, the physical world reflects what's going on in the spiritual world. And, and we walked through various scriptures that show how we see God and Satan at the same time. We see the angel of the Lord. We see Jesus and Satan in the same spaces, and, and they even talk and communicate. And so Satan right now is accusing the brethren. We talked about that last week. So right now, nonstop, day after day, calling out our sin. And he's not accurately counting out our, calling out our sin. No. He would go way worse, right? It's not only do we want to call you a sinner, we want to make you the worst sinner possible. And we're hearing this day and night, but then we have a defender. We actually sing about it. Jesus, our defender. So as Satan is up there and he's just accusing the brethren, calling out our sin, you look over and Jesus just says, paid for. And if we confess his name before men, Jesus says, I will confess your name before the Father. And eventually there's going to be a time, and this is a future event that we are waiting on, that Satan is going to lose his access to heaven, him and his demons, and he's going to be cast down to the earth, the second fall of Satan, if you remember last week. So he's already fell from glory because he was an angel of worship. He fell from glory because he wanted the same positioning of God. But now he is denied access to heaven. He's thrown to earth. And so when he's thrown to earth, he's standing on the sand of the sea. And there's a lot of implications to what this sea represents or symbolizes in a Jewish audience. But out of the sea rises the first beast. So let's talk about this. So at the very beginning of tribulation, the Antichrist, who's a mere man, just like me or you, just human, 
He is going to rise to power. The, the world is going to come into a one world government. And then it's going to kind of settle into a 10 nation federation. And Antichrist is going to rise to political power. Again, just a human, just like me and you. He's going to rise to political power there and rule over very dictatorship style. And he's going to sign a covenant with the Jews. It says with the many. So not all, but with the many, Daniel tells us. And that is going to be one that is like the main identifier of the starting of tribulation is the signing of that covenant. And he's going to sign that covenant and he's going to protect the Jews for the first three and a half years. He's going to allow them to rebuild their temple. He's going to allow them to continue their sacrifices in the temple. But then halfway through, he breaks that covenant. And why that is, is the human person who is Antichrist is going to be killed. That's the mortal wound that was referenced three times here, but it was healed. Did you catch that? And so Antichrist, the human, is going to be killed at the halfway point of tribulation, and Satan himself, when he is cast out of heaven and thrown to the earth, is going to incarnate and have this fake resurrection of the Antichrist. And that singular event that's going to be very well known is going to be the thing that the, and we'll talk about it, the second beast is going to cause the whole world to want to follow after the first beast who is the Antichrist. So first three and a half years, just mere human. It's going to be killed, brought back to life, I believe very publicly. And the world is going to marvel at this and Satan is going to incarnate him. And so we're going to have this faux, fake, Kmart special resurrection of the Antichrist, but it's going to be Satan himself incarnating this person of Antichrist. And so this first beast, he's in the image and the likeness of Satan, but he has 10 diadems compared to back in chapter 12, verse 3, the red dragon has seven. And there's going to be blasphemous names on his head. There's actually, here a little geek out for you, 33 in the Old Testament and 13 in the New Testament, different titles that we give to Satan. And he's going to have some of these written on his head. Daniel calls him the little horn or the king of bold face, the prince, the willful king. Jesus references him in John 5, 43. He says, the one who comes in his own name, whom Israel will receive as Messiah. That's why he's going to sign a covenant with the many. Not all. There's going to be a remnant. Even Zechariah tells us that about two-thirds of Israel will be killed through this. And it will be a remnant that is preserved. So not all are going to sign this covenant and, and look at the Antichrist as their Messiah. Paul in 2 Thessalonians calls this guy the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. And so when John is seeing this, this beast rising out, he says, it was like a leopard, feet like a bear, mouth like a lion, but is completely different. Which when we see those three animals, that takes us all the way back to Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel had a vision of four beasts. First being, you know, the leopard, the lion, and the bear, but then the fourth beast, unlike any of those, and it was completely different. This is the vision of Antichrist. And we see that the ten horns represent those ten kingdoms that we talked about that Antichrist is going to have authority over. Again, that was talked about in Daniel chapter 7. So if you're, if you're bored this afternoon or this week and you want to do a little further study, take Daniel 7, take Revelation 13, read them together, study them together, and see how from the Old and the New Testament just correlates so well together. 
And the key component here, verse 3, is one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. So this is like a death blow. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And so, yes, this man who is Antichrist will be killed. And actually, we don't have a whole lot of, in the word, descriptions of how that's going to go down. But somewhere halfway through, he's going to be killed. Satan is going to incarnate him and raise him from the dead. And that very public thing is going to, it's going to cause worldwide curiosity and marvel and wonder and worship of him. Because again, Satan is not an originator. He's a counterfeit. Just like us as the church, and we look to Christ who died on a cross for our sin, but then he was raised to new life. Satan's not trying to do something new. He merely wants to knock off the real thing. He wants to provide something that looks, oh yeah, didn't the Christians used to talk about something like that? Like somebody died and, and coming back, and oh yeah, here he is. And that's why the Jews will receive him as a Messiah. The same sign that they rejected the first time. Because it was Christ, they're going to fall to the deception of Satan and many with him. And so he is a counterfeiter from the very start. And the whole earth is going to marvel and wonder at this. And this is going to be a major identifier of this person. You know, so is it, is it a, a sitting president or a previous one or a soon-to-be one? Is it the Pope or somebody in Europe? Is it, is it really my fifth-grade teacher? A major identifier is the one that's going to be killed and brought back to life. Yeah, I, that would be a number one kind of vote in my ballot of who the Antichrist could be. But again, this is in the tribulation. The church will not be here. We who have put our faith and our trust in Christ will not be here for it. But that halfway mark is going to be an identifier of who he is. And that's key to understand. And then we see this progression of Antichrist in these last three and a half years of tribulation, as John called it, the 42 months. In verse 3, again, the world's going to wonder, and, and then it's going to turn into, verse 4, into worship. They're going to worship the beast, so they're going to see this, they're going to be curious, and now it's going to turn to worship. And then we're going to see in verse 5 and 6 that he's going to have these blasphemous words, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And then verses 7 to 10, he's making war. Literal hell on earth. Why? Because Satan incarnate is on earth. But it says that he's going to blaspheme God, his name, his dwelling, and all those who dwell in heaven. Right? We understand from chapter 12, verse 10, that he is the accuser. He's going to be true to his name and blaspheme everything. So, and give you a small analogy. Have you ever been kicked out of a restaurant? Knowing you people, I thought there would have been a way more hands up, right? <laughs> Either you have or you're a liar. There we go. No. And so, now when you get kicked out for whatever your behavior was, do you walk out and be like, that's my favorite place. The waitresses and the waiters and the staff is so good. The food is just choice and it's wonderful. Now, what do we do? We blaspheme everybody, right? We're yelling at the manager. We're waiting at the wait staff. The food is horrible. Why do we ever even come to this place? Why does all of a sudden Satan start blaspheming God, his dwelling, his name, and everybody that dwell in it? Because he's been kicked out. And he knows that his time is short. And he is waging full-on war and attack. And again, the first half of tribulation, he signed that covenant with the Jews. But at that 
Second half, he breaks that covenant. He starts attacking the Jews. Why attack the Jews? No other group of people that he could pick on? Is there no more Hittites, Amorites, Girgashites? You know, what about the Russians? We'd love for him to take over the, you know, right? Why, why is it the Jews? See, God has promises to Israel that we are still waiting to be fulfilled. But if there is no longer any Jewish people because the Antichrist kills them all, how could God be faithful to his promises? It would make God a liar. And Satan's goal is to thwart any plan of God. And knowing, again, at the uh, 12 verse 10, or no, no, it's 12 verse 12, uh, chapter 12 verse 12, his time is short. And so he's going to do everything in his power to try to thwart the plan of God. And if he can, he, he was accusing, trying to get one person to see that they weren't paid by the blood of Jesus. Well, he gets thrown out of heaven for that. And now he's going to go after, like we talked about before, he's going after the woman. He's going after Israel. Because think, even Jesus said, when he was looking over Jerusalem and he was kind of lamenting, and he's like, oh, just how much of, like if you were just a, a hen uh, would gather her chicks together, I would love to have gathered you, but they rejected him. But what does Jesus say? But when you see me, then there'll be that radical change of faith. So even Jesus affirms that the Jewish people, that Israel will be preserved where there are other groups of people that we have in the Old Testament. Uh, I forgot who it was, don't quote me, but someone was asked, like, how do you, how do you believe that the word of God is true? He goes, show, show me a Hittite. Show me a Hittite in New York. But the Jewish people, and not just Nazi Germany, but the Jewish people have always been under persecution from this world. And yet, they endure and they persevere. And they are our brothers. We are adopted into a Jewish faith. This is a Jewish Bible written by Jewish men, and our Messiah was Jewish. There you go. That's why I think anti-Semitism is the worst sin the Christian could commit, and we do it in so easy ways. And so here we have Satan accusing, and he's turning, and he's going to attack. And in verse 7, it says that he's allowed to make war on the saints. And we read that, and we think, well, Pastor Nick, there we are. That's the church. We're the saints, right? These are tribulation saints. And this is a key distinction, again, because it goes back to the character of God and the word of God. It says he was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Let's go down the rabbit trail that we as the church are going to live through this, which I do not believe, but let's just go down that rabbit trail, right? Think of what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, when he said, I'm going to build my church. And what does he say? The gates of hell will not prevail over it. So is Jesus right then there, or is the word of God here right? Or is it better to say that Jesus was right? Yeah, the gates of hell will not prevail over us as the church. And before tribulation, we will be raptured up, as 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us. And we are not destined for wrath. Multiple places in Scripture telling us that. And then the tribulation saints. So all believers will be taken up. But God, in his grace and his mercy, will allow salvation still to be available. That's what the 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be doing, is bringing people to the Lord. Now, will it be difficult for that tribulation saint 
to live through that? Absolutely. Most will probably be killed. We see that already. We've already walked through that, and we saw the great multitude. The most will probably be killed through this. We've talked about the population uh, decline from the seals to the trumpets, and now this will be starting. The last of tribulation will be the bowls. And it is a deliverance, it is a mercy of God not to allow them to live through the rest of this great tribulation. It's all tribulation, it's all the wrath of God. It just intensifies in the second half. But the church is not there. He is not fighting and conquering the church. Jesus was clear, the gates of hell will not prevail. But in this tribulation time with tribulation saints, those that come to faith in the tribulation, the Antichrist will make war and he will conquer them. But look at verse 10. Faith, salvation, and Christ alone is the weapon for the tribulation saint in this time. Again, the most evil ever in all of human history, the most depravity, the most war, the most death is going to be in this time. And what is the tribulation saint's weapon? Faith in Christ alone. Not faith in their weapons, not faith and their food supplies, not faith in, it's in faith in Christ alone. It's the same ammo. It's the same weapon that we have as the church. And if God is calling the tribulation saint to endure and keep faith in Jesus during this time, what kind of weapon is that for us today as the church who the gates of hell will not prevail over? Because he, broad brush, broad brush about the church, right? Let's, let's, let's have an honest conversation. How do, we're in a very real battle. It's not the tribulation, but we're in a very real battle. And the church is under persecution. How do we fight this battle? We sang the song, sounded good. The bass player was awesome. <laughs> like, I thought that was him. I thought so. How do we fight this battle? On our knees, in prayer. We do not fight against flesh and blood, Paul says. When did the church lose its greatest weapon? When did we get up off of our knees in prayer and think that we needed to pick up hate and bitterness and division against those that hate us? When did the church ever think, oh, let's not do it God's way. Let's not follow in the word of God. Let's, let's attack hate with hate. And if they scream at us, we're going to scream at them. And if they pick at us, we're going to pick at them. When did the church lose sight that we are to fight in a different way? Because when we stand against the world that does hate us, Jesus tells us that. The world hated me, but take heart, I've overcome the world. If the world hated him, the world's going to hate us. Why are we trying to fight against the very people that Jesus has called us to reach? We, as the church, need to understand and know that the only weapon that we have in this is on our knees in prayer. And we, as the church, look at it as at the last-ditch effort. Well, at least I'll pray for you. Well, at least we'll be praying for them. At least get some faith. Get a little passion that the greatest thing that we can do in the fight against the authority and the principalities and the kingdom is to pray and we have his word and his holy spirit indwelling us 
We fully need to understand that we as the church have a great power in prayer. And, we, and no one is too far gone past grace that we could be looking at somebody and they hate us. But we have to understand they don't hate us. They hate the Lord. They hate the truth. And we might give up and look at somebody like that and think, oh, they're just too far gone past grace. Paul would kick you in the face. He was like, if they are too far gone past grace, explain me. Because three years ago, I was persecuting the church. And now I'm leading in the church. So we have to understand the power of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we have somebody that's just so lost in their brokenness and their sin and what they believe to be true, how do you capture somebody's heart like that? What do you say to them? Maybe the first thing we need to do is hit our knees in prayer and allow the Holy Spirit to plow up the hardness of their heart, to break up some of that pain and bitterness and brokenness. And then we have to ask, okay, how do I engage this person in a Christ-like manner? Because Jesus loved to hang out with sinners. So how do I engage these people? That's a great thing to pray about. Because how do we do it in a way that we hold fast to the truth and grace? And so many times the church wants to pick one or the other. And we're super soft and we love the sweetness of the grace of God. And we're very little on the truth. But at the same breath, I think it's just as much of a sin to be all truth and never show the grace of Jesus. That they need to be both. And if you can read the Gospels and find a spot where Jesus wasn't, I'm all ears. But when he engaged a lost, broken world, it was grace and truth. And so we as the church having faith in Jesus, having the word of God being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we have to understand that the power that we have, Jesus tells us that. Acts 1, the power will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will give testimony that you will be living examples of Christ in a lost, broken world. I think the world is ready to see Jesus again not just returning on the clouds, but in the church, the hands and the feet of Jesus. Those who are called little Christians, I think the world's ready to see Jesus again. And whatever form of Jesus that, and again, broad brush, and I'm talking to my own people and I'm pointing the finger at myself, the Jesus that we've been exampling, it seems like we get farther and farther from the word of God in it. And we're causing a struggle in the world because they might hear about the Jesus of the wor word but they see the Jesus in us and it doesn't make sense if there was ever a moment for the church to hit their knees in prayer I think today is a beautiful day for it and now we have the second beast if you understand and go back to Revelation 12 3 we see the red dragon who is Satan himself and then there's the first beast, which is the Antichrist, a counterfeit Jesus. And then we have a second beast, a, now a third person in this, and he is a false prophet, a counterfeit Holy Spirit. And so we see this unholy satanic trinity. Because again, Satan is a counterfeit. 
This is a, this isn't even like the Kmart blue light special, right? We can say that because Kmart doesn't exist anymore. This is the guy selling things out of his trunk in the parking lot of Kmart, right? Don't worry about the 80% sale in Kmart. I'll sell it to you even cheaper out here, right? This is a cheap knockoff of God. But think about this. There's, there's some, and, and, and I would say this would lean to heresy, there's some Christians that believe not in the Trinity. It's called a oneness, where they would believe God is, God is one person. Not, God's not three persons. He is just one. And I won't tell you some of the authors and some of the Christian music that hold to this, because then I'll wreck your life. And I remember doing that with one pastor. I said, oh, yeah, that group, they're, they're oneness Pentecostal. They don't believe in the Trinity. And pastor looked at me, don't tell me that. I like their music. <laughs> Heretical, but okay, good little beat, you know. But there's some that they believe that God is not three persons. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, but in unity, one God. They wouldn't believe in that. They would say, God, there's only one person of God. Here's the issue I have. If that is true, then why is Satan counterfeiting a trinity? Satan's not an originator. Satan is a counterfeit. And so he sees a, a Father, Son, Holy Spirit in this holy trinity, and he wants to mimic it. He wants to counterfeit it. And so we see this unholy satanic trinity of Satan himself, Antichrist, who he will indwell, and Satan on earth. And then you have the second beast, the false prophet, a counterfeit Holy Spirit. And this, this second beast makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Why? Because of the healed wound. That's a key component that we see in verse 12 and 14. That look at this sign and, and these wonders that this false prophet will do. And it'll cause many to turn and worship to the Antichrist. And so he's going to be this religious leader of a false religion worshiping Antichrist. So think about that. The, the Antichrist himself is going to rise out of more of a political stance. And then the false prophet's going to rise more out of a religious position. That's why some people way back in the day, they were like, no, it's the king and the pope, and this is exactly, and, but we're going to see this false prophet turn the world to worship the first beast. And look at verse 13 and 14, and if this offends you, you're welcome. It's only going to get worse. The second beast is going to perform signs and wonders. The greatest sign that we see here is what's called the abomination of desolation. We've talked about that, that you have to have a temple. That's why he's going to allow them to rebuild the temple, and halfway through, he's going to cut that covenant, break it, and he's going to set himself up as the abomination of desolation. Referenced in Daniel 9 and 11, Matthew 24, Jesus talked about it. He goes, that's the sign to the Jew to run, to flee to the wilderness, is when you see the abomination of desolation. So what is that? Antichrist is going to set himself up as God in the temple. And, and to take it even a crazier thought, Revelation 13 tells us that there's going to be some kind of sign that's going to be hung in there. And it's actually going to be given breath of life. And so this picture, this whatever image of Antichrist is actually going to be able to speak. And not only speak, he'll be able to slay people if they don't worship the Antichrist. And now all our minds are running like this is like some crazy hologram picture or something. But that is the abomination of desolation. 
And the warning to us is this second beast is going to be able to perform signs, make even fire come down from heaven in front of people, and the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, and it's going to deceive those who dwell on the earth. What's the warning to us? Not all signs and wonders point to Jesus. So if you hear even this side of all of this, and even in the church, we sometimes as humans get captivated by signs and wonders, and we run away from the word of God in the presence of Jesus. And we run after signs and wonders, but we have to understand not all signs and wonders point out righteousness, godliness. They're not all authentic. Even think back in the Exodus, when Moses appeared before Pharaoh, he performed 10 plagues. Pharaoh's magicians were able to mimic at least three of those. That there really is an evil spiritual power that can bring about signs and wonders. And every once in a while I get sent little videos of signs and wonders and outpourings of and manifestations of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you right now, I walk very slowly into those things. I think we need to be good Bereans, Acts 17, 11, where we need to search the scriptures and see if they were so. Because again, we need to understand the truth that not all signs are from God. And just because we see that, that could be a great deception. But we need to walk with the word and an indwelling of the Holy Spirit, walk in wisdom and see if these things are so. Because any sign or wonder should pull us closer to Jesus, not against it. So if you see something, it's like, well, that's a little bit different and odd from, you know, maybe the word of God, that should be a massive red flag. But again, we're so captivated by signs and wonders, and I think it's a great deception even in the church today. We have the full word of God. We have an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yes, God can do anything and everything, but God is not a God of chaos. God is orchestrated. He is a God of order. And there are far more verses about preparation than it is about spontaneity of God. And I think one of the gravest issues is even at the pulpit within the church. So many pastors, I've heard this, like, oh, I just let the Spirit lead, and they don't prep. Get off the pulpit then. God is a God of preparation. Yes, we absolutely allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide, but he doesn't work around that. I believe God works through the preparation of a man humbling himself before the word of God, chewing, struggling, and understanding the weight of presenting the word of God to his people. That should not be taken lightly. And when we want to try to... Uh, uh, use signs and wonders to elevate the authority that we have. I think it's a great deception in the church. And we see that even the second beast is going to use that same thing and it's going to bring about a great uh, abandoning to worship the Antichrist. And now to the part that everybody waits for at Revelation. What is the mark of the beast? So if you have your notebooks, get them open, get ready to write. Here we go. So we see the mark of the beast. It's going to be some mark to the right hand or the forehead. And not all will take it. Not all are going to be conquered, right? Most will, but not all. Even the Jews, they sign a covenant with the many, but not all of them. 
And so not everyone's going to take this mark. And I do believe, and again, this is in the tribulation, if you take the mark of the beast, you will not be able to repent and have salvation, that you are signing your destiny to be with the Antichrist. Now, what's unique about this is there's only one spot that we have a description of who Antichrist is, a physical description. It's in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17. It says, woe to my worthless shepherd. So we sang about our good shepherd that defends us, but Antichrist, it says, woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock and may the sword strike his right arm in his right eye, and let his arm be wholly withered. Not holy like H-O-L-Y, but holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Let it wholly be withered in his right eye, utterly blinded. It's the only description we have of Antichrist in all of Scripture. And so the mark on your right hand or the forehead for those living in the tribulation, it's going to be an allegiance to Antichrist. It's going to say, no, I, I'm, I'm going to be marked in his image because that's how he is. He is marked in Antichrist. It's going to be a tribute to him. And so, again, we as the church will not be here, and we don't have to worry about waking up one day and think, did I take the mark? Ah, cut it off quick, right? We know that verse, better to cut off your right hand than your whole body. Like, is that what? No, that's not. We don't need to worry about that. It's not going to be an accidental thing that happens to people. It's going to be out of a willful allegiance to Antichrist. Let's take it one step further. So what is the mark? And what is the number 666? And again, you can take that numerical, you can divide it out however you want, carry the four. I could get any name to fit that. There's no less than a dozen names of people who think they know what 666 and the mark of the beast is. And I'm going to say this as your pastor. If somebody says that they know what the mark of the beast is and they know what 666 is referencing to an individual, understand what the word of God says. Walk in wisdom. That person does not know. And they have been deceived. And I say that for a couple reasons. It's the mark of the beast. It's his mark. It's his number meaning you have to have a beast first for to have a mark to flow from it, to have a number to flow from it. The mark does not identify the beast. The beast identifies what the mark will be. The number doesn't identify the beast. We don't need to search and research and get into numerology and it's like, now we know who it is. The beast will reveal and show what that number is. The beast identifies the number. And there's a whole lot of Christian superstition that needs to be repented of because of this. And I mean that wholeheartedly. And this plays out in little ways. It's like if you're uh, going on a little uh, road trip and you stop for some snackage, right? Twizzlers, that's my jam when you're driving. You got to have some Twizzlers. And you roll up to the register and you, they scan everything in and they say, oh, you owe $6.66. Can I buy a stick of gum? Can we just bump this up like five cents? Anything to get off of that number? Like, ah, I'm not paying for this. And you just steal instead, right? Do you know what that means if you see $6.66? You know what that really means? You owe the register $6.66. <laughs> but we walk in such superstition or we see the things of the world and think, that has to be the mark. I can't do that because that's going to be the mark. Anybody see the beast yet? 
Has Antichrist revealed himself yet? Has he signed a covenant with the Jews yet? Has he been killed and resurrected through Satan indwelling him yet? No. Think of easier analogy. Which came first, chicken or the egg? No, it's easy. <laughs> Which came first, Michael Jordan or 23? Michael Jordan came first. He is what gave the value of what the number 23 means. So if we're talking about basketball and the number 23, we understand who we're talking about. The goat, the greatest ever. I don't care what you say. It's Michael Jordan. He gave, he gave the value to that number. It's the same way. You have to have Michael before you have a number 23. Any number could have been plastered on him, and that would have been the infamous number. You have to have a beast first. You have to look and see that if we are on earth and somebody's like, that's the mark of the beast, be like, we as the church won't be here for that because this is a part of the wrath of God being poured out. We're not here. We are not destined for that. That is promises given multiple times in the word of God. And so we don't have to walk in superstition. We don't have to walk in fear. We walk in fullness of the Holy Spirit. We walk in confidence of the gospel. We walk in the fullness of his word, not in superstition of numbers and numerology and signs and wonders. The greatest sign has been given, and it's Christ on the cross in an empty grave. We need to look no further. We await a savior. We don't await signs and wonders. You know what one group of people gives so much focus to the mark of the beast and the number 666? Sadly, it's the church. We're fascinated by it. And instead, I think we need to be fascinated by what Paul said in Galatians 6.17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I think we as the church need to be far more concerned about what does it mean to be marked for Jesus than what the mark of the beast is? What does it mean to be numbered in the fold of God and to be considered a part of his body than to be numbered with the beast? And traditionally at the end of the month is our communion Sunday. And I think it's very fitting that we as the church get to celebrate this symbolism that we remember, again, we don't have to walk in superstition, we don't have to walk in fear, but we walk in confidence in the body and the blood of Jesus, that we, our sin is past, present, future paid for because his grace is sufficient. And so walk in that confidence. We're gonna start with the outside sections and the back row Baptist. Love you, mean it. I'm Baptist too. Here we go. And then we'll move to the next sections and then the uh, best for last, the last will be first. Grab a cup, grab a little piece of bread, gluten-free, go back to your seats and then we will take it together as a family. So you're coming down the outside, grab your elements and come up the middle. So go ahead, outside. We got a last few grabbing a couple elements here. No worries, no rush, take your time. As you guys were walking up and grabbing the elements, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Praying for you. It was, it's always kind of fun when I get to play and worship. They don't let me do it often, as you could probably tell. <laughs> but to sit and just look out and see the body worship. And we know, you know, we're not immune to the idea that a lot of us have a few things going on, but it's hard. 
and we worship from a place of uh, grief. But even in the midst of that, grief, pain, and sorrow, there's still peace there. And even when our life is in turmoil and everything around us seems just completely upside down, it is well with our soul because we can walk confidently. Again, our faith isn't in outcomes. Our faith is in the person of Jesus, meaning that whatever outcome he brings to us, it is good. It is well. And when we get to remember the body and the blood of Jesus, that's why it is well. Because he took the greatest thing for us, our place on that cross. And the, his view of us, he doesn't remember our past sin. He doesn't see the current things that we struggle with. He doesn't see even the future things that we will fail at. He just sees his children walking in righteousness. That's what the blood of Jesus and his body being broken. This is what we are remembering as we take this, that on the cross, his body was broken. And so we remember and take the bread. And we understand what he did and having his blood poured out and that our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus. But we also remember the new covenants, the new thing that he is doing. And even for some of us this morning, Today is a, as Philippians 1, 6 would say, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That's what we're walking towards. And so today might be a new day, a new beginning, a good work that he wants to begin in you. Or you might be smack dab in the middle of it and you're wondering, when's God gonna wrap this thing up? It might take your whole journey. And that's okay. Why? because our faith is in him, not in the outcome. We don't need to look to our right or left and compare our faith journeys with somebody else. We just keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus and understand that he who began a good work, we do this because we proclaim his death until when? Until he comes, until the day of Jesus. So let's remember the blood of Jesus. Father, we love you. We trust you. And we thank you for those that prematurely crack their communion cups. <laughs> Lord, you are great. And you are doing a work in and through us. And I pray that we would not walk in fear. We would walk boldly, courageously. We would walk in wisdom. We would walk in faith in you. And as you lead and guide us, as your hands, your feet, your heart in this world, Lord, I pray that the lost broken world, living in darkness, they would see you, the light. So give us that kind of faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, there it is. Those that patiently endured. <laughs> Scott and Lori Blackshire are our prayer team this service. And so if you guys have anything that you want to pray with them about, talk with them, God's stirring your heart, go see them. Other than that, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you.